Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 255, The Transition from the Soviet Union to Russia. Last time, we concluded our series on the transition from the nation of Russia to the Soviet Union. Today, we reverse the order and talk about the transition from the USSR back to Russia at the end of the 20th century. My primary sources of information for this episode are The Coming Soviet Crash by Judy Shelton, A Failed Empire by Vladislav Zubok, Memoirs by Mikhail Gorbachev, and A History of Modern Russia from Tsarism to the 21st Century by Robert Service. Then, of course, I will back it all up with my extensive library. The communist-ruled Russia and the rest of the countries under Soviet control from its formation in 1922 until its collapse in 1991. The USSR had eight leaders. Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Georgi Malenkov, Nikita Khrushchev, Leonid Brezhnev, Yuri Andropov, Konstantin Chernenkov, and Mikhail Gorbachev. When the Soviet Union closed its doors on December 26, 1991, it was flat broke. The promise of a communist socialist utopia failed and failed big time. Gorbachev and the USSR had been begging for capital infusions from the West, with mixed results. But as Judy Shelton puts it in her book, The Coming Soviet Crash, published in 18... 1989, quote, The Soviets are now working very hard to obtain financial credits from the West. Why have they stepped up their borrowing from commercial banks? What are they going after investment capital through joint ventures with private Western companies? What prompted their decision to issue sovereign bonds to Western investors? For the first time since Tsarist times, and why are Kremlin officials suggesting that they would like to join the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank? The short answer is the correct one. They need the money. It must have been tough for the Kremlin leadership to admit that the Marxist-Leninist system was a failure. The thing is, they might have believed it in their heart and soul, outwardly, they thought that the Soviet people were negligent in carrying out the theories and ideals of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. Nevertheless, Gorbachev truly believed that socialism was the proper economic system. The problem, he thought, lay with smaller subunits within the communist system that didn't perform with the needed efficiency that would have avoided the financial crisis that came about. Of course, that's not the real reason why the Soviet system failed. They were cooking the books, so to say. Judy Shelton points out a series of accounting anomalies that pop up throughout the published budgets from the Kremlin. For example, in the published Soviet budget surplus table that Shelton shares, the USSR showed a surplus from 1970 to 1986, that never exceeded 3.38%, which happened in 
1981, nor went under 0.57%, which happened in 1986. Now, it's pretty remarkable that they could have been so tight. As she puts it, quote, a difference between revenues and expenditures that can be kept so relatively small, yet so persistently on the plus side, implies a level of finesse in the art of central planning that approaches omniscience. Now, Shelton's second table shows an annual increase in revenues from 1970 to 1986. They average a nearly 6% growth per year, an absolutely extraordinary rate. When she digs deeper into the actual budget numbers, we see that the official line that the smaller segments of the Soviet economy were to blame for the shortfalls is, in fact, false by their own reports. If these numbers were even close to being true, we have to ask, why did they need access to foreign monies to keep their economy afloat? Of course, the answer is simple. The numbers were all a ruse. When Gorbachev was under the tutelage of the then Premier Yuri Andropov, he asked to see the internal books of the USSR. He was denied because he wasn't privileged enough to see the actual financial statements. Here's what Gorbachev said in his autobiography about his request. Quote, The first question we had to grapple with after Andropov's election concerned a decision which had been taken by the Politburo when Brezhnev was still alive, and that is to increase prices for bread and cotton fabrics. Andropov asked Rishkov and me to examine the matter once more and to report our conclusions to him. Trying to understand the essence of the whole business, we asked for access to the budget, but Andropov simply laughed it off. Nothing doing. You're asking too much. The budget is off limits to you. Gorbachev then revealed the truth about the Soviet economic system. Quote, I must say that many secrets of the budget were so well kept that I found out about some of them only on the eve of my stepping down as president. Nonetheless, I knew the greatest secret, namely that our budget was full of holes. It was continually being replenished by the savings bank. In other words, money was drawn from the savings of the citizens and by raising the internal debt. Meanwhile, it was officially proclaimed that revenues always exceeded the expenditures and that all was very well balanced. So, what Gorbachev was saying was that the government was stealing the people's savings and proclaiming that to be revenues. If you recall, I've mentioned many times that my Russian history professor, Dr. Paul Average, told us in 1977 that the Soviet Union was broke and that it would eventually collapse. Shelton says this in her book, The Coming Soviet Crash, in 1989, and Gorbachev pretty much admitted it in his autobiography, Memoirs. Oh, by the way, I highly recommend those interested pick up a copy of Gorbachev's book, and read it cover to cover. It is highly entertaining and gives a lot of insight into the state of the Soviet Union during Gorbachev's lifetime. For the Soviet people, 
consumer products were becoming more difficult to obtain, food shortages were being seen, and overall, the country continued through a period known as the Brezhnev Stagnation. Things were getting so bad that Andropov was forced to buy foreign grain to feed the populace. Andropov himself believed that the problem was with the people, not the system. He thought people were loafing around, not working together to make the system function properly. Therefore, Andropov wanted to arrest people seen as not working when they should be. Gorbachev writes this in response, quote, I tried to argue with him that it was unseemingly for people to be seized in the name of Andropov while they were taking turns to queue because they had no other time to do their shopping. I told him that these actions undermined his authority and that jokes were already circulating. Gorbachev further goes on to say, Relying on the information supplied by Fyodorchuk, Yuri Vladimirovich sincerely believed that these measures would rally the ordinary people to his side. Brushing aside my objections, he would say, Just wait and see. When you get to be my age, you'll understand. The understanding of the people culminated in the sale of cheap vodka, which was immediately nicknamed Andropovka, or according to the display of letters on the label, the crankshaft. And ironically, in some respect, Yuri Vladimirovich was right. As time was rushed by, much of what happened then has now fallen into oblivion or scarcely remembered. But this episode of the struggle for discipline still lingers on in the memory of many people. Now, the failure of the communist state and the laying of the blame on those who quote-unquote lack discipline has an eerie resemblance to what happened in Germany after World War II. The loyal Hitler fans at the time couldn't believe that the Fuhrer was to blame. No, it was must have been the soldiers who didn't fight hard enough, like my father. That he was blind to one eye, to them, was merely an excuse. And this he had personal experiences with. They said he should have died in combat instead, which would have eventually led to the Nazis winning the war. This is one of the reasons my family immigrated to the United States, and it was because of this constant finger-pointing at my father and my Russian heritage mother. Even today, many older Russians believe communism would have survived had more people showed more discipline and devotion to the ideals of Lenin and Stalin. With his invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin seems to want to return to those so-called glory days of the Soviet Empire. It's hard to admit that a system that had promised so much and delivered so little was at fault. They were told time and time again that Leninism was flawless, that it was the way to utopia, that it only needed for the people to sacrifice for the good of their country. With the failure of the USSR and the turmoil that came with it in 1991, the transition from a communist state-controlled economy into a capitalist free market economy couldn't have gone any worse. One of the problems was the lack of financial support from the West. They not only didn't help financially, 
but they also made Russia responsible for the over $100 billion in debt that was owed by the Soviet Union. Secondly, the West invited many of the former Iron Curtain countries into NATO, infuriating the Russians. Still, there was little they could do about it. Additionally, the European Union was being put together with its formal start on November 1st, 1993, following the signing of the Maastricht Treaty. Although the Eastern Bloc countries of the Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Poland, Slovakia, and Slovenia did not join until, no, until 2004, it was thought to be inevitable. This would further isolate Russia both territorially as well as economically. As Vladislav Zubak puts it in his book, A Failed Empire, quote, Due to its size and geography, Russia did not fit either the EU or NATO. Statesmen and diplomats in Washington, Moscow, and above all, London and Berlin remembered the famous saying of Lord Ismay, the first Secretary General of NATO, that the alliance's purpose was to keep Americans in, Russians out, and Germans down. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, the West expected the Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarus to transition away from communism as quickly as possible. Despite using what was called quote-unquote shock therapy, the leap towards a market economy did not happen as it did in countries like Poland, the Czech Republic, or Hungary. Each Russian was given ownership certificates when the state-owned businesses were converted into public entities. The problem was the ownership of those companies and this certificate wasn't able to pay the rent or buy food or clothes. Some intrepid criminals and businessmen were able to find financing and began to buy the certificates from the people for pennies on the dollar. These men would become the oligarchs we know of today. As Zubak put it, quote, the Russian economy contracted by more than two-fifths a greater recession than the United States had experienced in the 1930s. Whole areas of the country, including dozens of industrial conglomerates and techno-cities in the military-industrial complex, remained without funds and became blighted. The reformers failed to stop hyperinflation, and Russians, who lost their life savings, fled from the ruble to the U.S. dollar. The extensive social services of Soviet times, from free kindergartens to free health care and paid vacations, disappeared overnight. Violent crime soared, and life expectancy plummeted from 70 to 65 years. Russia experienced demographic contraction of catastrophic proportions. Its science and engineering, education and culture were starving, saved only by grants from American philanthropist George Soros and a few Western foundations. Can you imagine the effect this had on the psyche of the Russian people? When the Bolsheviks overthrew the provisional government after the collapse of the Romanov dynasty, the people believed it was a necessary change. The crushing control of the czarist regimes, the wealth of the 1%, and the poverty of most of the country had to be eliminated. 
when the Soviet Union collapsed, not only was the rug pulled out from under the people, the house was taken away with it. As Zubak further goes on to explain, quote, During the early 1900s, 1.5 million highly educated and talented Russians emigrated for economic reasons. Now, the Yeltsin reforms neglected not only Russian society, but also state institutions. The state that emerged from the communist collapse was very weak, could not collect taxes, and could not implement necessary market reforms. Corruption swept through Russia like a tsunami. The Russian army became such a pitiful wreck that in 1994-96, to it lost a war against the separatist irregulars in the mountain region of Chechnya. The economic, civil, and societal upheaval in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union should remind you of what happened in Germany after World War I. The Weimar Republic could not control hyperinflation. As a result, there was widespread civil unrest, and it unleashed the authoritarian reign of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis of power in the world. Is there any doubt that a return to an authoritarian-style government would occur in Russia post-Yeltsin? It didn't look that way initially, but as you can see today, that is what emerged from the chaos. So, who is to blame for this debacle? Clearly, the Soviet-Leninist Marxist system has to take the brunt of the responsibility. It was built on a flimsy ideal, full of promises and magical counting tricks to last as long as it did. The Cold War between the West and the Soviet bloc ruined the economy of the USSR, as well as causing its society to move toward the brink of total collapse. The final reason could have been totally diffused had the West been honorable and provided the type of financial support that Russia so desperately needed. The Cold War itself is not to blame. No, it rightfully led to, as Zubok points out, quote, the American superpower had prudently contained Soviet expansionism during the Cold War, wisely constructed the free world to oppose the communist bloc, and led the enlargement of the West after the victory in the Cold War. He does point out that after the victory, there was no coherent plan, no innovative vision on how to deal with the new Russia. As soon as the West figured out that communism was no longer a threat to return to power in Russia, it was no longer an important focus point. The West became Russophobic. They blamed the Russians for failing to pull themselves out of the morass. To further rub salt into the economic wound that Russia was suffering, the U.S. refused to open its markets to Russian exports, citing a 1974 congressional bill that denied the Soviet Union most favored nation trade status. They even tightened visa restrictions for Russian tourists and businessmen. Part of the problem that arose was the anger the eastern parts of Europe felt, which felt a deep resentment against Russia for their subjugation during the Cold War. The West, sensing a way to bring all those nations under their auspices, added them to NATO and the EU, as I mentioned earlier, leaving Russia behind. Zubak again writes, quote, Many people in these countries suspected that the post-communist Russia 
was just a reincarnation of the old empire. Some Eastern European and Baltic politicians believed NATO's purpose was to protect them from Russian imperialism. The relationship between NATO and the West became really dicey when they decided in 1999 to bomb Serbia under the guise of preventing genocide against Kosovo Albanians. This was in direct opposition to a vote by the UN Security Council. While many voices within Russia were still pro-Western, pro-US, and pro-EU, they evaporated quickly. The promises made by American President George H.W. Bush to Gorbachev to build Russia a common European home now rang hollow. Russia felt abandoned, lied to, and all alone, and this feeling continues to this day. When the U.S. was attacked on September 11, 2001, the new president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, offered to help the Americans get rid of the Taliban. Mind you, this wasn't just to help the U.S., as the Taliban was a significant thorn in Russia's side. Still, they did offer and deliver help. But, unfortunately, the Americans showed almost no return of the favor. Instead, they began to foster pro-democracy movements within the former Russian Empire's countries, like Ukraine, Georgia, and others in Central Asia. To top it off, when the U.S. invaded Iraq in March of 2003, many in the Kremlin believed this to be another proof of American unilateralism and another means of keeping Russia out of the global picture. Then, in 2004, something known as the Orange Revolution enveloped Georgia and Ukraine. At the time, both countries were considered pretty dysfunctional, especially Ukraine. Russia tried to intervene in the or interfere in the Ukrainian elections, but that backfired due to the heavy-handedness of their obstruction of a fair vote. The West decided to support Ukraine, unlike their lack of support for Russia's attempts at democracy. Putin was now sure there was no way forward to creating a rapprochement with the West. Instead, he tightened his grip on society and, in particular, the large corporations that were formed after the Soviet breakup. Anyone who dared to oppose his authority was imprisoned, dispatched, or, if they were smart, emigrated to the West. From here, Putin was able to divert the billions of dollars of profits from the hands of a wide swath of oligarchs into the Kremlin and his associates. At first, the economy of Russia began to boom, without any help from the West. What they did was to take advantage of the immense natural resources of Russia, and in particular, oil and natural gas. The amount of petrodollars that Russia could generate fueled a renewal of the economic resurgence and the reappearance of an affluent middle class. Russia was now able to pay off all its debt. Birth rates, which had fallen to record lows, began to rise rapidly and the people were able to take vacations, enjoy the fruits of their labor. Russia also now had the third largest currency reserve in the world, behind only the U.S. and China. But there was a cost. They could no longer feel safe criticizing the government. 
while the economic recovery was indeed remarkable, it still paled in comparison to many of the former Soviet bloc countries, such as Estonia, Armenia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. Also, it is way behind the growth shown by China and India. As Zubok claims, quote, for all its bravado, Russia remains a developing country with huge unsolved problems. The Russian state and society still have to address rampant corruption, inadequate transportation, and infrastructure, the historical neglect of the law, an appalling attitude toward the environment, and much more. The Russian state and policies are guided by the whims and calculation of leaders. This means that Russian leadership can produce, without any checks and balances, disastrous policy choices and stagnation in the future. Russian economic power rests on a shaky foundation of high energy prices. The enormous flow of oil revenues have already produced the Dutch disease, a combination of an overvalued ruble and inflationary pressures that stifles the competitiveness of Russian industries and agriculture. When COVID-19 hit the world and caused the price of oil to plummet to levels never seen before, Russia's inflow of capital was thunderstruck. Putin needed to find something to divert people's attention from the reversal of economic growth. They needed a war. We are now in 2023, and Russia has invaded Ukraine, and it's been one year. Unfortunately for Vladimir Putin, his army isn't the powerhouse it made itself out to be. The rampant corruption during Tsarist and Soviet times is still with them, and the powers of NATO, the EU, and the United States are against them. Where will the transition from the Soviet Union to Russia end? We are still, after all these years, in the midst of it, so we're not too sure what the future brings. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we start a new two-part series. Next time, we will investigate the Iron Curtain. And I also want to remind everybody that you can subscribe you know, for as little as $3 a month to the Russian Rulers uh, History Podcast. Uh, thank you to the uh, people who have already donated. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's at, you can get the link to RussianRulersHistory.com. So, until next time, Das Vidanya y Spasiba Zavenya Manya.